Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by culture and leadership coach Dean Leak. Dean, welcome back to the podcast. Absolute pleasure to be back. It's always a genuine privilege. And we were talking earlier that when you think about success and what that means it's, it's always a pleasure to be invited back for a second time and I love our conversations so I'm excited. Yes well the last time you were on this podcast was April 2021 so that is almost three years ago that time has gone so fast we've actually worked together since then but in that episode for anyone who didn't listen to it we discussed perfectionism we talked about comparison and how to stop comparing so much and how to stop caring so much about what other people think of us. So, before we dive into today's topics, because I've got so much to talk to you about, could you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do, the work you do, the, the leaders, the organisations and the individuals that you help? Yeah, sure. So, I guess most of my career has been informed by working in Olympic and Paralympic sports. So, I spent 15 years working with athletes and coaches and leaders on how to try and develop a mindset that's conducive to delivering performance, but doing that in the context of teams. So how do you build an environment where you release the potential of people to go and achieve some awesome things? And um, like many people, had a reflection during the pandemic and reassessed what I wanted to do with my life. And I left sport and I now consult, coach with individuals and organisations from government to corporate companies on... How do you um, develop really brilliant cultures? We'll talk about healthy high performance hopefully today, um, but also what that might mean for developing brilliant leaders and um, you know trying to create uh, an environment where people can flourish. Yes, gosh, so much in there. Healthy high performance. That's the first thing I'm probably going to jump straight into, to be honest, because I loved it when you said that. I thought, okay, healthy high performance. What does that mean? What does that look like? Surely that's what we all want, because I think with all the things that you just discussed, you know, potential, being able to achieve, whether it's professional athletes in in the sporting world or whether it's in the corporate world or or even just in our own lives as individuals, I think this idea of high performance is often pitched as to to be high performing you have to be you know it's a certain kind of work ethic and mindset which is kind of go and do and more and strive and achieve and just you know that's kind of pitched at one end of the scale and I know that the idea the culture around you know I'm committed and I'll work really hard and I'll work long hours and I'll give everything blood sweat and tears to perform at my best whatever it takes that kind of vibe and then over on the other side I think often they're seen as these opposing things, which is this, yeah, healthy culture and human-centered culture, I know you call it, or an idea that you want to work in a way which is much more mindful and you kind of think of them as polar opposites. So do you want this kind of culture where you work really hard, you achieve loads at all costs and maybe you make loads of money and the company's successful? Or do you want this kind of culture where, you know, everyone gets along and it's nice and it's calm and we can 
you know, meditate and take a nap and walk your dog. And it's, I think often people are like, which kind of company am I going into? Or which kind of person do I want to be? Or what kind of lifestyle do I want? So I know, I hope that you're going to say that actually these things aren't mutually exclusive and that healthy high performance exists. Maybe. You tell me. Well, I think you've summarised it better than I could. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's a, a really good starting point. And you're right. I think we often think that they're binary things that um, can't be mutually inclusive of each other and when people ask me Dean what do you mean by healthy high performance culture or what does a successful culture or team look like in an organization and and by the way when we talk about some of these principles they absolutely apply to individuals as well as teams Um, and I mean first of all what I would say is that there's definitely not a formula so if I go into an organization, I'm not going to come off with a off-the-shelf product or a formula to say, hey, if you do these things, this is going to produce a successful organization. Um, that, that sadly isn't the case. And the thing that I find is that we often think that success is about trying to create a culture whereby everybody's happy and harmonious that we're all getting along the whole time. Mm. And I think, yes, when you look at a successful team, there's a to some extent a hard working culture yes they're energized yes they're committed um but the thing that actually is really common in all teams is that they're inherently dysfunctional mm. but the thing that really gels teams together isn't about chasing happiness and this harmonious culture it's actually having a real shared sense of purpose it's grounded in a real sense of belonging there's a story that anchors all of the individuals around so that we're chasing that thing. And for me, when we explore what is the DNA of a human being, the the thing that really anchors us uh, that in the dysfunctional narrative that we've spoken about there is, is uncertainty. Um, And we often think about trying to remove the uncertainty, trying to get rid of it. But in, in a team context, I, I think there's something in sharing that collective uncertainty Mm, okay, so I don't want to kind of jump in too soon, but you've mentioned a few things there around. So this happy, harmonious. So yeah, I guess the idea that actually for a team to be functional it doesn't have to be happy, harmonious all the time, right? So we can have thoughtful disagreement. People might not always get along or agree, but I guess figuring out ways to to still communicate to overcome that. You also mentioned then around having a shared purposefulness a shared goal like not just like the words that are written on the wall that says oh at this company we're trying to you know solve x problem but I suppose a genuine feeling of actually I'm here because I'm trying to do this and this team is trying to do x so do you think it's kind of important for people to have like a purpose for themselves within the setting of the team so for example like I'm the person in the team who's responsible for this or I'm the person in the team who's the best I don't know, storyteller or I'm the best negotiator or people figuring out their purpose within that team? Or do you just mean everyone has this, I guess, North Star that we're working towards together? It's a really good point. I think when I look back at my own experiences when I was leading teams and for someone who really values autonomy and ownership, I thought that the organisational vision, values and sense of belonging was something that was always up for democracy, that everybody should be involved in shaping it. Um, and actually, when you lean into the principles of like people craving a sense of like certainty and direction, I think it's really important that organisations provide clarity. So we're going to talk about the five C's of a high-performing team. The first one is clarity. 
Um, and for me, the, the clarity is important in the context of providing like a really inspiring vision, like something that is your North Star that you spoke to there that really articulates like these are the principles that we stand for. Um, and these are almost like the non-negotiables. You know, these yeah. are the things that are like this is what we stand for and this is what matters to us and, and shaping that around the narrative. So, you know, this is where we've come from. These are the challenges that we face as an organisation. And I've got an example, actually, of when I consulted with a mm -hmm. construction company and I was just being curious and asking what they stood for, you know, what mattered to them, you know, what was the story of the organisation. And they kept on going to the how. Yeah, this is our strategy. This is how we're going to reach our KPIs. And this is, like, how we work around here. But as I kept on digging, we got to the story. And what fascinated me was the fact that they didn't, tell me the story but the company had actually built the houses of parliament well wow. okay so a lot of people might go well that's terrible <laughs> why, why is that something that you want to hold up but actually when they dug into it they realized that one that's a really cool story but also um it grounded each human being as they onboarded them into the company that this is where we've come from this has been our heritage this is you know what we've been involved in then it created a sense of purpose so i think um finding deep within your company story is really important for employee engagement but it can also just be relevant at a team context and i look back into my years at olympic sport and i always remember a lady called mel marshall who was the head coach for adam Peaty. and you know he's well known in the olympic world multi gold medalist at the olympic games and they were trying to, um, again, reach within and hit these massive performance advantages to improve his breaststroke. I think he did the 100-metre breaststroke. And the world record was 68 seconds. Um, and they all set up on this mission to try and break that record. And they called it Project 50, uh, 67. Right. And it was something that Clarity. anything that they did, all related to achieving this shared vision that they could all rally around and all be really kind of in pursuit of. And I guess what might appear contradictory to that, and to some extent it's paradoxical, whilst I think it's important to have that shared sense of this is what our vision is, organisations have got to find the place for recognising and appreciating the vast difference of stories that exist within teams. So when we talk about teams being inherently dysfunctional... Mm -hmm. It's because we've all come from different backgrounds. We've got different beliefs. We've got different values. So organisational success is how you're able to blend both the vision of the organisation with each of the different individual stories that exist within that team. Yikes. Okay, so I can see why it's not as simple as, like you said, this kind of copy and paste, because, of course, anyone, even just looking at, like I say, a mission statement on the wall or a company objective or, or a North Star, to any single person, like you said, in the team, they're going to come at it with a different, yeah, different viewpoint, a different... Some people are going to be really lit up and excited and energised by one thing, other people maybe not so much. But I do think that piece around clarity, for so many people, I mean, you know, I do work in startups and sometimes in a startup culture, I feel like everyone's like, this is the mission, yeah! Like, it can just feel very kind of exciting and fast and, you know, we're all in this together, let's build this thing. But 
there's so off so often a lack of clarity there can be okay we're doing this we're doing that we're doing and often you see like one company that's trying to build something and they'll, they're almost trying to build five things at the same time mm. and it's sometimes this idea of well one of them is going to figure itself out but if everybody's working on something different then yeah i think people eventually become very frustrated they waste a lot of time waste a lot of energy that clarity piece is so so important and and also i'll be honest just in our everyday lives you know i did a social media post the other day i think you saw it around i was talking about for the year ahead obviously it's the start of the year what is your word for the year and what i meant was kind of if you were to pick a word that you can kind of keep i guess your own north star you can keep coming back to this year keep reminding yourself like what is my word and why and i shared mine as being conviction so this year my word is conviction and the reason is because I feel as though I may be at an age and stage in my life with certain things going on where I just, I know now, you know, you figure stuff out and you're like, I don't know, obviously know everything, but you get to put, you're like, I know what I want, I know what I don't want. And you start to, I just think conviction for me this year to be able to say yes to things and say no to things. And that's okay to choose things with conviction, not second guessing, self doubt, etc. And even as an individual, just picking a word like that and saying, this is my word for the year, you're giving yourself clarity. You know, when you when things come up later on in the year where you might have to make a decision or you might have loads of things going on and you have to put some things down to pursue other things, clarity, just that word, even on, you haven't got to the next four yet, but number one, clarity, I think is, yeah, so, so important, especially at the start of a year, to really know what am I actually trying to achieve. So that's number one. Should we go to number two? Uh, but just on that as well, when you talk about the clarity, that's why that sense of vision that doesn't get into the how just yet is so important because when you start to then look at, okay, so how do we roll out this policy or like what processes and ways of working are important to us? What's our roles and responsibilities? We can see that then if we align it up to that vision, then, you know, people tend to buy into it. You know, when it then starts to, you know, we have to then make tough decisions, it becomes easier because we've all got that shared sense of narrative. So, yeah, yeah. you can kind of use it as a benchmark as well as for accountability, right? Great. Okay. What is number two, the five C's of a healthy, high performing team? Yeah. So again, we're we're looking at this in the context of like, how do we try and build teams that are more agile, more resilient and like more healthy? And um, I really liked your description of the, the binary nature of how we see teams. But if we've got clarity, then another thing which links to this sense of teams being dysfunctional is that what we often strive to do is try and remove conflict. So we want to try and get rid of it because it feels a bit uncomfortable. So let's just get rid of conflict and we're therefore going to be more harmonious. But actually we know that success is often down to how we embrace challenge. So rather than trying to get rid of conflict, how do we embrace it and see that challenge is not only going to draw us closer to one another, it's going to create a stronger team bond, it's actually going to help us grow. So we invite that challenge if we've got that strong sense of trust, which we'll get onto, but it's harboring an environment where we can have a healthy culture of feedback, that we can have real in-time conversations with one another. We, we call it performance conversations, whereby we're genuinely trying to um, improve, not in this hustle culture that you talked about, but in the spirit that if we're wanting to improve and things changing constantly with the introduction of AI, change is constant we can't rely on just pushing things down the road or ignoring it we have to have those those honest and real compassionate and i emphasize compassion um deliberately because it's got to be done in the right way and Mm. that's the healthy part to keep on improving okay first question that comes to mind when i hear the word conflict 
some people are self-confessed. They'll say they are conflict avoidant. They don't like it. They don't like the feeling. It gives them physical anxiety, dis-ease, stomachache, whatever, headache, anxiety, sweats. People will literally tell me, Adrian, I hate conflict so much that I would rather avoid the situation altogether, avoid the conversation. And that could be in a professional setting, you know, with a co-worker or a manager, or it could also be in a personal setting. Like, you know, if someone's got a difficult relationship with their mother-in-law or with their sibling or with anyone in their personal life where they go you know what oh, I really hate conflict so when they start something I just kind of go oh okay fine and I either just surrender and I don't have any you know say in it or they avoid it so much that they actually just try and put as much distance and space between them and that person and just hope that they never have to have the conversation so if someone's yeah listening who says yes I am conflict avoidant I just can't bear I can't think of anything worse than being in conflict with someone what is your advice to that person how do you help them to understand when and how conflict can be useful can be resolved and how they can feel better about it yeah and i would start by saying i totally understand and resonate with it from a personal perspective like my whole life feels like it's been um scarred by avoidance right just when i feel that sense of discomfort and challenge just naturally instinct is i want to run away from it right so i spent a lot of time and we and we talk about where does change happen well i, I think change starts within um, and I talk about this self-leadership compass that I think we all need to develop. And for me, I've had to build a lot of emotional fitness around this. So I've had to turn that avoidance into something that I use um, as something to lean into. So first of all, I'd say that it's really normal. Um, and I think for me, the reason why I was so addicted to conflict um, and avoidance was because I was just trying to get rid of the feeling my whole life. Mm. spent so much time saying I just wish this didn't exist within me why can't it just go away let's just get rid of it but when I moved into a mindset of accepting that discomfort's okay I was then more meaningfully able to engage in it um, so that was kind of the first route for me and then I, I, I guess secondly um, what was important for me being able to meaningfully engage in discomfort was having real clarity on what my purpose was and what my values are and what truly mattered to me because then when I had that line of sight hmm. I was able to be more true to what mattered to me mm-hmm. um, and when we talk about conflict I'm not suggesting that we should be living in an environment where there's constant conflict for me it's about removing unnecessary conflict but also just appreciating that a little bit of discomfort in conversations or decisions that need to be made is actually quite healthy for a bit of growth yeah yeah I agree and I think sometimes as well it can just be around the strategy around how so for example if I think about myself anecdotally I feel like in a professional setting I'm okay with conflict and you know that doesn't mean yeah I want to you know argue with people or disagree on or have but I can thoughtfully disagree in a professional setting I feel like I can remain calm I can remain professional I'd probably prefer to do it face to face but we can also you know either it's via email I just feel like I can be very clear around my boundaries I can be clear around my expectations I can be clear around my rules and I can just kind of say look if this is a disagreement let's discuss it point by point you know I'm very kind of systematic however if it's a personal relationship, if you are my friend, if you are my sister, if you are in my life, if I love you, I can't bear conflict. I don't want to have it. I don't want to. I don't. I find it harder to set boundaries. I just it's so different. And I think even just knowing that 
I'm like, okay, that's interesting. What do I need to do about that? And I think if it's the other way around, it's almost easier in a professional setting, I'd say, because I would say to somebody, okay, write an email with bullet points or prepare before the meeting and write notes so that when you go into that meeting with that annoying guy that always talks over you, you can calmly come back to your notes but when it's yeah maybe if it's your partner or your you know sibling or something like that or a mother-in-law like I said I know a lot of people (laughs) I've got a lot of friends who they kind of like yeah they have conflict with their mother-in-laws especially when they have babies um and I think it's just a hard thing isn't it where there's so many complex emotions going on people's feelings and pride and there's so much there that I think I don't know is it I guess I'm asking you for personal advice, but in a personal relationship, do you feel like you can approach conflict in the same way that you would in this kind of leadership professional role? Well, I think there's commonalities, but you used the word choice earlier. So I talk about being choiceful. Um, and one thing we can do, and again, it's, it's trying to move away from this idea of avoidance and actually do some mental preparation ahead of certain situations. So it might be that we're spending time with the family at Christmas and we all know what that's going to throw up (laughs) or when we're going to go and see a mate and we kind of know what's going to play out in a certain situation and it might be that it's grounded in advice that they might give or just how they talk about certain people one thing we can do is rather than just pretending that everything's going to be okay and try and manifest some positivity um, is more realistic thinking which is doing a mental warm-up where you actually start to preempt what's going to happen so we go okay what's likely to play out on this situation what might they say how might it make me feel when we start to visualize that we're priming our brain so when it happens it doesn't surprise us and you can respond better because like you say you're not taken aback you can go i knew she was going to say that and i'm just going to say you know what i don't want to talk about that with you and the art (laughs) of mental preparation is that if we then start to anticipate that happening we then can choose how we want to respond Yes. And we've already got that ready in our brains. Yes. So that then sort of like helps us meaningfully deal with a a difficult situation. But often what we do in situations, and I do this with leaders, whether that's before presentations or whether they're going into a difficult negotiation, is trying to get them doing the mental work beforehand so that when they get into that situation, it's not trying to control it, but you're at least going in with some type of compass that, enables you to be who you want to be Mm. rather than just being primed by the environment yes okay i like that all right so let's go back to the list so we've got clarity conflict what's number three number three is connection um and this is the idea that any high performance um any difficult conversation any sense of progress in a team has got to be grounded in a deep sense of trust a deep sense of belonging not just belonging to that sense of real clear purpose but belonging to each other real strong relationships moving away from this just being about me but it being about us and having that that shared sense of togetherness um and a a big part of that is empathy and i talk a lot about Mm. this and again empathy is often misunderstood you know we think that when we're empathizing that um that we're giving into our values, that we're compromising what we believe, that, again, it's seen as a weakness. But there's actually quite a lot of depth to empathy. And I think naturally as human beings, we we have the first part of empathy, which is emotional empathy, mm-hmm. that ability to feel what somebody else is feeling. 
I think the muscle that I think we all need to build, and it's something that I've had to work on, then I think we need to see this at a systemic level within organisations and culture is this cognitive um, empathy, which is the ability for me to put myself into your position and see the world through your lens. So then I'm reaching in to you and going, I wonder how Adrian might be feeling right now. I wonder how you know, you are seeing the world. It's developing that second person perspective. Mm. I'm walking across this bridge between me and you to see your world. And then the third part of empathy, which which actually is more compassion. And, that, and that's, yes, I feel what you're feeling. I understand cognitively what you're thinking. Now can I help? You know, and the compassion piece is sort of moving away from this. I understand too, I'm, I'm willing to help. So, you know, for me, connected teams that are built on a sense of trust um, that produces more reliability is more likely to help us when we're going through those real tough times you know when you see sport teams that are going into the trenches if the team's grounded in trust I think that's where you get performance yeah and it makes sense that it would but I feel like I have a few challenges for you here Dean and they're not necessarily my own challenges but here we are I think it makes sense that it would. And when I hear that, if I think about, okay, if I was going to go and work in an organisation, obviously when you first start, you know, you don't know anyone, but as time progresses, and I'm thinking about the modern world where there might be some work from home situation, there might be some virtual meets, there might be some people working in different time zones, working abroad, so you only ever interact with them via, you know, Zoom calls, meetings, etc. I feel like this idea, of course, should make sense that the more connected you are to your co-workers the more you trust them the more they understand you and who you are the more they're invested in you as a person because you're not just there to do this transactional thing which is okay we're building this thing you actually need to care about okay knowing for example about you okay dean you know he has kids and i have kids that's something that we can you know kind of relate to each other or just having that connection makes sense However, I've definitely seen online this kind of like Gen Z, Gen Alpha, like movement around like when a company, I've seen this trending online and I think it's kind of quite funny. Basically, if a company tells you we're a family, run for the hills, because basically what they're saying is that this idea of like building, you know, a connection where we're all a family essentially is this kind of fake utopia where they then can essentially like just... uh, exploit you emotionally because you're kind of this is a family so you're do you know what I mean you're more bought in and this idea that you know when you kind of I don't know these weird initiation things that people do into teams where it's like you know you've got to wear this thing and do this thing and drink this thing and suddenly you're in the team and it's just I don't know there's this thing online anyway a bit of a movement around it saying that when companies try to lure you in with this like we're a family no they're not they're your employer and know that they're your employer and know that actually there should be this yeah I guess like boundary between professional relationship and personal relationship for so that you're not then leaning into this boundary thing of oh I'll do the extra thing or I'll work those hours or I'll do this unpaid labor because we're a family so yeah how do we how would we I guess draw that dotted line between the two things so I'm I'm with you and um I deliberately don't mention family because I'm the anti-family narrative yeah it's weird right if someone says welcome to the family you're like I mean if anything though like we could like if there's any analogy that I wouldn't use but as you were speaking then I was thinking it's probably a bit more like sisters and brothers there's like fallings out right you Mm -hmm. know there's often conflict and like you know you have good times so that that might be a bit more um of a analogy drawn but I would always stay away from any family metaphor because to your point (laughs) just just any family in general (laughs) just just stay away from it um it's a red flag um but I think like when we're talking about belonging for me 
it's the little things that really matter. It's the taking an interest in, tell me about your life, tell me about the things that matter to you, mm. you know, tell me about, you know, what you believe in. Um, in the spirit that I'm not here to judge because I recognise we're all beautiful human beings of difference. Uh, and when we talk about belonging, again, it's perhaps you've had somebody just join the organisation. It can just be little simple things like saying, you know what, I recognise that you've just been through a really tough interview. Well done. <laughs> Yeah, you know, welcome, welcome to our workplace, and actually, moving away from the family metaphor, you know what? We value you so much that we want to help you grow, and we accept that sometimes people leave us. But if we've left you being a better human being, then that's great. I'm more likely to buy into that yeah. than the we're a family. We want to keep you here forever. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's it as well because I think the yeah Gen Alpha apparently statistically changed and more change jobs every eighteen months to two years. Whereas we know that historically, if you look at people who've been in organisations for twenty years, thirty years, you know, I go into. I'm sure you do. I go into organisations where people say to me, "Yeah, I've worked here for twenty five years," and I'm just like, "Oh my gosh!" Because that seems like wild to me as someone who I suppose loves change we're going to talk about change um but i know for some people that doesn't mean they've done the same job in the same role but they've been with the same company for you know their whole professional life or years and years and years and they really do feel as though i suppose that kind of institutionalized you know they're kind of like i'm here i'm part of the furniture and people kind of um yeah some people like that i suppose but but talking about those generations i i think we know that what they really value is a sense of purpose, but also they value freedom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if I'm being brought into an institution where it feels like it's like one happy families, but also like this is how we, these are the rules around our family, it's going to put people off. Mm. And you're going like, to be here forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like being in prison. Yeah, yeah. Freedom, of course, I think is, is, as you say, very much valued by the new, I guess, workforce generation for lots of reasons. I think one to do with, you know, being able to travel, access, housing pricing, you know, all these different economic factors that I think like pricing younger people out of purchasing their first home. So therefore like, well, actually I can travel all over the world. Why would I, you know, do that? I and that's where the, I think the, the because uh, all of these areas are massively interconnected. And again, it's, this is not a recipe, but it goes back to the importance of the clarity piece. Mm. This is why it's so important to unashamedly say this is what we stand for and these are our non-negotiables yeah. you know because otherwise people feel trapped and they feel like they're in prison and it's just not a healthy environment yeah. okay great so we've got clarity conflict connection what's next the next one is this idea of continuous improvement and continuous um, improvement okay as human beings we know that what's massively important um, in a, in any sense of success is is growth growth is connected to openness and then we know that, that that's connected to curiosity so i always talk about that continuous improvement is the compound interest of curiosity ooh i like you see you've got all these phrases i like that so cuz i was thinking when you say continuous improvement the word I'm thinking of is progression. I'm like, okay, we want to be progressing. And most people say that, don't they? They want to be progressing. They want to be learning. They want to be doing new things. But I like this, the compound interest of curiosity. Yeah. Yes, you're talking my language. So it's just, again, I saw having a, this is why having a con collective mindset around some key principles is important for there to be progress. And one of them for me would be there being a culture of curiosity. Mm. And curiosity can mean many things. It could be, a culture whereby there's no fear of consequence for experimenting. 
It mm. could just be leaning into each other and asking more questions. So rather than it being a culture of advocacy of my opinion the whole time, actually I'm going to be more of a coach and I'm just going to ask lots of questions because I want to understand your perspective. Mm. That links the connection. It links the challenge because we know that if we ask questions, we're better problem solvers. So continuous improvement is directly correlated to this sense of curiosity. It's particularly important in a leadership context that if we can have that sense of vulnerability around I don't know and I don't know if I'm always right, it's then likely to create a culture that's mimicked. So we know that as social animals, we copy and we particularly copy people in authority positions mm-hmm. and that is the, the fifth C that we'll get onto around leadership but yeah I mean you work in innovation you I know do. You're, you're always future thinking and looking at performance where where have you seen continuous improvement happen well what does it mean to you as a oh well yeah you're right I do work in innovation future thinking I think curiosity that word I think the question's thing comes up a lot so I think when I work with people in innovation teams and it's all about okay future thinking trends forecasting and innovation those people ask a lot of questions they really do you know they're not afraid to say well tell me for example let's say I I have an opinion you have an opinion that is very different instead of me trying to argue and advocate for mine and try and convince you that mine is right I would just ask you a lot of questions to say to you, well, can you tell me why you think that? Or what's the missing piece? What am I missing in my thinking? What have I missed? Tell me. And it's just, again, asking questions, being willing to listen to the other person. Uh, I, I like this idea that of a red team and a blue team. So, for example, if we had a problem that we were trying to solve and I said to just divided the organisation into two teams, red and blue, the red team's responsibility is to showcase all the ways that this idea is going to work, all the ways it's going to work, all the benefit, all the upside, every single possible good outcome that could come from this, doing this, making this decision or doing this project. The blue team is the opposite of that, the inverse of that, to, to kind of, I suppose, highlight and disprove and show every single way this could go wrong, all the reasons this is a terrible idea, all the reasons this is a waste of time and a waste of money and we should just not pursue it. And the red team and the blue team are mixed up, all different people from design, from marketing to finance, all different. It's not like one team versus another. It's all mixed because that way, whichever team you're allocated to, you have to try to you know do your job, but then also you're going to listen to the other side and it's just going to showcase oh, wow, I never actually thought of the red team's idea of that opportunity. I hadn't even thought of that. Or the blue team going, oh, this isn't going to work because it's highlighting barriers. It's highlighting potential mistakes. So then you can prevent those mistakes from happening, leading to more progress. I think it's being curious because after you come up with the first 10, it's like, okay, how, what else? Add more things to the list. What else could be great about this? Well, what else could go wrong? And I think if you're willing to do that as an organisation, I mean, how many places, let's be honest, how many places have the time give their employees the time, the freedom and the space to do that kind of project. Often it's probably, you know, people have got deadlines, we've got things to do, you know, quarterly things, let's go, let's go, let's go. When do people have the space and the time to sit down and do something creative and curious and answer those kind of questions? I'm sure people who are listening would probably think, I do not have time to do anything like that in my job. But if they did, how much more progress could they make and how much faster and how much more fun would it be to... Yeah, make progress in that curious way. And that's a really good example of how if you have that mindset, you're not only going to get performance gains, you're also creating a really inclusive 
um, culture that feels like people belong, right? I remember going back to when I first started out my career in Olympic sport and I was interviewing or in conversation rather with the head coach. So massive imposter syndrome, still thinking like, why am I here? Like I'm absolutely fraudulent for even being in this role and having a conversation then he said something and I remember that I was so terrified that the only thing that I uttered was "Uh uh-huh and then he continued to talk and then he said Dean you're a really good listener (laughs) so I accidentally learned the power of not saying a lot and just actually being present in the moment and listening is actually a super strength for creating innovation Yes, and especially, I think, as you go higher up, because everybody wants to talk, everybody wants to add their thing and show how smart they are and how innovative they are in their ideas. And often, I think people are fighting for the mic. So, yes, I can imagine actually having one person in the room who's just happy to listen. And also, I guess a top tip is to have a pen and a notebook in your hand. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, all the time. In meetings, virtuals, I will not sit down to do a meeting without a virtual meeting without a pen and paper because two reasons. One, it stops you interrupting. Because if someone's mid-sentence and you have a question or thought, just write it down. Just write it down. When they're finished talking, you won't forget it. And two, I think writing things down that maybe, yeah, just pop into your mind that you don't want to forget or just listening. You can just, I think, I personally, maybe because I'm quite easily distracted, I'm a much better listener if I have a pen and paper in my hands. Because it gives me that kind of, oh, I'll write that down instead of, as I say, interjecting. Because, yeah, most people probably can't listen without without speaking. We always want to talk. And also, like, um, you'll have lots of good ideas on this, and maybe this is um, for for another conversation. There's one thing writing things down, absolutely, and I, and I was terrible at that for many years. Then developing a system because I write things down and I never look back at it. Okay. So like, it's like, how do you develop a system for putting that in some type of order? And it's something that I've had to really work out. Yeah, but maybe just writing it down, it, just doing the action of it itself, sometimes can be enough because yeah, when we maybe. write things down with a pen, anyway, not the same as typing you commit it to your memory. You remember things more that you've written with your own handwriting. So I find that to be really helpful. Yeah, so even if you don't go back to it and you've just got notebooks all over the house, like me, then at least you've written it down in the first place. All right, okay, so tell us about number five. So first, I'm just going to do a quick recap. We've got clarity, conflict, connection, continuous improvement, and... Conscious leadership. So I talk about... In order for any of those four things to be realised, it's often that the leaders set the tone. Mm-hmm. So going back to that social animal kind of idea, you know, we, we do look at our leaders and what you often see in what shows up in how leaders role model behaviours is played out in the environment. Yeah. So conscious leadership, and again, there's a real deliberate word here around conscious, is trying to create a real human-centred environment that we are balancing that insatiable need for wanting to have success and grow, but we need to balance that through developing a healthy performance environment. So, you know, we've, we've talked about empathy, we've talked about, you know, trust, we've talked about openness, you know, that's got to be lived through the leaders. And leadership's interesting because being a leader can be incredibly tough. It can be very lonely um, and you're having to navigate so many different competing priorities. But I don't think there's, a again, a recipe for, for how leaders need to be. I think it's a balancing act. So you might see out there that leaders need to be empathetic or they need to be like this and need to be like that. Actually, leadership is a bit like wearing um, a different coat to work for different contexts. Mm. I might wear one coat in one context that's going to help me 
deliver this negotiation or actually I'm going into performance review where I need to be highly compassionate. I need to be able to pivot and adapt my style. So leadership isn't about having one style. It's being able to cultivate, um, you know, many different skills in different contexts. Yeah, that's an interesting piece that I think is often missed out. You're right. Often it's kind of like lead by example and lead like this and be this kind of leader. But you're totally right. Different settings require different things. Now, of course, there are the structural, you know, hierarchy things. Let's be honest. There are there is, you know, a CEO and there is a C-suite and there are leaders. But I also think that people within organisations often look up and kind of you probably see this as well it's like a pointing fingers and a blame you know like well the reason that the culture is like this is because of them and you know it's it's almost this idea of us and them us and them and people point up to leaders I think often with a kind of feeling of it's your responsibility to change it it's your responsibility you know leader's responsibility to make it better and arguably of course you can see that structure in that hierarchy and I can see in certain examples how yes leadership by example totally but what about I suppose yeah, self-leadership in terms of if you're, you know, midway, I suppose, up the, in the in the chain and you've got people up and down, you know, and you're kind of there in the middle. Don't all of us surely like play a role in some way? We all lead somebody, right? Even if it's just leading ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's a good point. When I think about leadership, I don't mean it's the CEO. I think everybody's a leader. Hmm. I think we all need that self-leadership. We all need that sense of this is what's important and that courage to act and that's often influenced by the environment. But if you want to create the change you want to see, you've got to be the change you want to see. You so, do something, you yeah. know, and, and, and therefore that creates a, a sense of followership. Um, and again, this is going back to the point around that there not being a formula for this. When I go into companies, I would often do a real deep dive culture um, health check where I would really get into the nitty gritties of how people think, feel and act and and it might be that in one culture there's a real suffering around conflict avoidance, which then leads to um, absence of feedback, which then creates lots of issues. Or in one culture there might be a real lack of sense of purpose. So you would try and figure it out based on a given context. You'll know this from your experiences, like every company is very different. Um, yeah, even the people within the organisation will tell you completely different things, right? So one person will come along and be like, yeah, we do all these things for company wellbeing, we do this for mental health day and we do this for menopause awareness and we do all these things and we, you know, and another person will come to me in the lunch break and go, oh my gosh, everyone in my team is burnt out, everyone in my team is stressed, you know, we listen to this wellbeing day but then tomorrow it's just back to same as usual and it's uh, two different people in the same organisation will tell me a very different story Mm. and I often reflect on that and think well is it the person you know is it their personality some people just you know some people always want to complain right and they're more negative or is it their role or is it actually their their experience their lived experience like we talked about before is it that actually some people who are saying oh everything's great are in a real privileged position where everybody in the organization listens to them and respects them and they've maybe had a different experience throughout their life as someone else who maybe doesn't have that same privilege and doesn't have that same voice. And I think, yeah, it's interesting because, and it's not easy, you know, I'm sitting here thinking like, as if we've got all the answers, we should start a company. But it's not easy, you know, bringing groups of people together. We're all different. We've all got different personalities and all the rest of it. And I think bringing people together and trying to create anything in a shared, you know, with a shared objective is just a hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. And you're absolutely spot on. And that's where I think when you look at, what people value in other human beings and therefore elevates the importance of this in a leader is vulnerability. 
So as human beings, we know that we're all imperfect, that we don't always have the answers. And when that's acknowledged from a leader, super powerful. Mm. And I think I came across something recently that talked about vulnerability and that the Latin meaning of it was the willingness to be wounded. It's our, our ability to open ourselves up to that emotional injury in the spirit that it's going to help us grow and it's going to help enable others and I I saw this actually in a really good example whereby the CEO and the COO delivered a session with about 60 leaders of an organization and they were terrified about basically communicating a policy decision that had been rejected by a essentially the the government and they were just terrified as to what people's reactions were going to be. And they went in and you could see the personal disappointment in how they communicated to the group and they shared their disappointment. They were highly empathetic. And what they were worried about was the weakness that that might have come across. But actually what it did was that it enabled everybody to rally around how to solve the problem. Yeah. So then people were just sharing some great ideas. And again, it just showed to me the, the power of that collective voice and being vulnerable to say, look, we don't have the answers here. Um, can you help us out? And it was really powerful. Yeah, and I can understand why in that setting, yeah, you're not going to so much, but you don't want to blame the person when you can see that they're also, I suppose, yeah, they're human. You know, so they're human, they have emotion. And vulnerability is a word that, let's get into that a little bit more because it's something that I know you have talked about a lot and I think you do a good job of talking about vulnerability in a way that doesn't make me have the ick you know i'll be honest i feel like this vulnerability and i know the word that always comes with it say it with me authenticity, authenticity. oh my gosh <laughs> so this thing authenticity vulnerability i hear the word and i just go <clears throat> so the reason i want to talk about it a bit um is <sighs> where to be where to begin i think sometimes the idea of vulnerability and, you, and maybe when you said then about being willingness to the willingness to have a wound or share a wound or something like that is I think vulnerability is often seen as sharing a negative thing whether it's a trauma whether it's a story whether it's a hardship whether it's a kind of listen to this yeah hardship that I went through or I'm going through and it's always got to be bad um however you know this word authenticity often comes up and it's like that's being authentic that's being real however it doesn't always hold true when it's the other way around so for example someone who's joyful someone who's happy someone who's thriving people go oh, that's not authentic that's not the re you know that's keep it real be be your real self you can't be happy all the time you can't be joyful all the time it's not you know instead of trying instead of being joyful be authentic so i have this real kind of issue i guess with this word vulnerability authenticity and 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 how authentic it is when people stand up or when people go on social media or when people feel the need to yeah share this like this trauma or this thing where sometimes it's not even appropriate just to prove the, how real they are and how authentic they are. And I find it so uncomfortable. It, I actually feel like it's inauthentic vulnerability. That is what I'm just, <laughs> I, you know, it makes my skin crawl. So what is going on? Why do we all feel like we, if we share our wounds with everybody else and show people, oh, look, that's beneficial? Like, that's a good thing? What am I missing here? I'll be the curious one. Well, how am I getting this wrong? I'm not sure whether you're getting it wrong, but I can feel the the, the passion coming out of your voice. And uh, <laughs> I, wow, um, we hit a nerve. I, we've hit a nerve. <laughs> Let's go. So there's so much nuance to this, and we might have to play around in the margins of the concepts because they're they're, they're quite deep. I guess one in some manner it makes sense why people act inauthentically. 
so much that I guess we're always wanting to fit in, right? We want to belong. So the thing that we fear most is rejection. So I'm going to do anything to prove my worth and be something that's going to make you happy. Where do we see that play out the most? Social media. Hmm. Now, for me, I'm on this path of trying to redefine authenticity and the way that I try to explain it, or at least the way that it's most helpful for me in showing up to be authentic is that it's this concept of what got you here won't necessarily get you there. When you delve into the real definition of authenticity, at the heart of it is being genuine. And at the heart of being genuine is being relatable. None of that connects to this idea of self. They're interconnected, but when we're looking at authenticity, it's about me and you being in this present moment. Mm -hmm. It's a we, it's a partnership. It actually links more closely to empathy. Mm -hmm. So rather than me putting out into the world, this is the person that I want to be in accordance to what I think you want me to be, it's actually being comfortable with oneself, having a sense of, yes, this is my purpose, and that's a whole conversation as to what that is. This is what my values are. And therefore, this is what my non-negotiables are. So I, I, I can have that present in my mind. But I don't have to use that as a stick. I don't have to use that as being my real self the whole time. Hmm. Actually, this is about we're in conversation. I'm in a meeting with my team. I'm being present in that moment, in that context. And the reason why this is important, I think, is that if I'm being my real self the whole time, with whatever that means, being my real self, hmm. then... I'm not pivoting or adapting to the environment. Because let's just say that one of my core values is honesty. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, and this might be um, a terrible example, but sometimes in a given context, I might need to choose a value that might not be painful or hurtful in that given moment. Yeah, so basically you you value honesty and you're like, okay, my authentic, real, I don't know, vulnerable self, yeah, honesty. But you also, I don't know, you're smart, right? You can read the room. Like you said, empathy. It might not always be the right appropriate time to be honest. You might have to, like you say, I guess go against that, right? Be Conflict your own value and go, actually, this isn't the time and the place. And that's what I think I'm trying to get at is that it's not always the time and the place. So it's not always, whether it's on social media post, whether it's in LinkedIn. People want to do this a lot on LinkedIn. I'm like, I don't need that. What's going on? And this idea of perception, I think that's what it is. I think it's this idea that we're curating, like you've got to be perceived or you want people to perceive you in a certain way and therefore this idea that we've all got to show up every day and kind of, yeah, share our trauma, share up. We've all got it. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think you'll meet a single person who hasn't got had adversity, who hasn't had a difficult year let's be honest last year every person I can think of in my personal life professional life people have challenges and I'm not saying keep it a secret and you know put on a brave face at all but I just don't always think it's appropriate this kind of you know you've got to be vulnerable you've got to be real and in order to do that that means yeah doom and gloom all the time and 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 sharing trauma and also sometimes people aren't even ready to share it do you know what I mean like they're out there being like oh this is going on and I'm like you need support. You need support from people who love you. You might need support from a professional therapist, but you might also need just support from your partner or your your family, not thousands of strangers on LinkedIn. Like, I just, mm. yeah, I find, I think we've gone too so far. So we're getting shamed by the authenticity stick on Yeah, or, or you're, Yeah, or you're, or you're not, 
yeah, yeah. I don't know. This idea that like if you just maybe you just maybe it's also not that deep. Why has everything got to be deep? Why can't you just go on holiday, have a nice time, and post a nice pic? I just want to see that pic. I want to see that you've had a joyful time, and I'm just going to go yes. Enjoy your life. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy your life. I'm not going to go. Oh well. In order for you to have this joyful experience and share that without shame, you have to tell me about this awful time you had. You know, it's but like what, I just I want totally to see agree. the fun and I be totally like, agree. I'm here for it. Enjoy your life. Have a cocktail. Cheers. <laughs> and it goes back it's to the that point deep. of like, what do we mean by being our true selves? Because if if we believe that life changes and things pivot and we can't always have a sense of what the future holds. Thinking that being our true selves is going to help us evolve is actually not very smart, is it? Because we know that we have new events and experiences in life and that changes us. So if we're sticking to something that worked previously, that's not going to necessarily happen or at least serve us moving forward. Well, you said the word change and uncertainty, which I just, yeah, we haven't got that long left. Otherwise, I'll just be, we could talk all day, Dean. But the idea of change, I read this stat the other day, which I thought was fascinating. And it said that typically when people look back upon their lives and they scan across when they made the biggest changes and by big changes that could be relocating to a new country, it could be getting divorced, it could be getting married, it could be having a baby, it could be just a big life change. They typically happen when we are 29, 39 or 40. Big life changes, big transformation, you know? And I thought that was fascinating. I started thinking, going back across my own life, I was like, what did I do when I was 29? Um, and I think, and obviously I'm yeah, I'm 36, so I'm thinking, oh, and it's it's interesting. I was wondering, okay, why? Firstly, and obviously the explanation is kind of pretty simple. It's like the eve of, you know, so before this big I'm turning 40 or I'm turning 50 or whatever it is, people go through, before that eve, they start to reassess, they start to reevaluate. they might look back and go, what have I done over the last 10 years? And they start to make these big changes. So yeah, this idea of uncertainty and of change and the fact that people do sometimes want to make big radical change. Where do you sit with the idea that actually change when it's your choice, as you said before, can be great, can be exciting, embrace it versus feeling a need to change because of maybe unhappiness or being unfulfilled or someone else kind of nudging you going oh you should be doing this or you should be doing that you know how can people differentiate I suppose if they're feeling a need for change start of the year how can they figure out is this an authentic feeling authentic (laughs) see what's happened (laughs) now I'm using the word is this yeah is this change something that I want that I choose or is this change being driven from a place of something someone else like you know dissatisfaction or comparison or something that's maybe not as authentic i can't believe i'm using this word it's a really good question again as you said we, we haven't got long but we could dive into this maybe in podcast number three yeah um, did you know that though about the 29 39 49? i didn't actually and it makes sense and i'm reflecting on some of my life experiences and i think that to some extent is probably true i need to go back and maybe do like a bit of like timeline therapy on this yeah it, new, new year's resolutions is a, is a classic isn't it yeah that we set out and you know we spoke about this previously the sense that um often what drives a lot of our decisions is like fleeting feelings in the moment so we feel massively motivated um and that might be that is connected to the way that we buy things or how we uh, commit to certain fitness goals you know we have this feeling of i'm going to do this and then we use all of our energy reserves and then we get burnt out and then you know we fall by the wayside and it's just a, a cycle habit right but i go back to if we're going to navigate the change that we face in our life it goes back to that sense of choice and i think we give ourselves the best chance of creating choice one 
by starting with self-awareness. And I call this like developing your noticing muscle. Mm-hmm. So there's the ability to notice whether that's your feelings or thoughts playing out and going, I'm noticing I'm having this thought. And being able to create that space between that kind of stimulus, which is your thought or feeling, and response. And saying, this is how I want to behave right now. This is the action that I want to take. And this is what I'm going to commit to. Even if it feels uncomfortable, and this is the key bit, we're not trying to remove discomfort. We're going, I recognise this is really uncomfortable. And this is actually quite challenging. But I'm going to sit with that discomfort. And despite that, I'm going to take action that's in alignment. And this is key for step two of what matters to me. So I would talk about, in any context, people having their own leadership manifesto Mm -hmm. or leadership pledges and that can be for anybody which is these are the these are my kind of mantras in life Mm -hmm. that I stick to that helps me navigate difficulty Um, because if we don't have those things in place then what we're doing is we turn up and we're being led by the environment that might be the person or it might be a culture rather than if we want to create the change We've got to have that our own sense of, you know, inner compass, that sense of manifesto that we stand up for. I love this idea of the manifesto. In fact, I used that uh, maybe a couple of years ago with one of my mentees. So I used to have a mentee. Uh, she was 15 years old. I was her mentor for two years. And we created a personal manifesto for her right at the end of our mentoring, at the end of our two years together. And we created a manifesto for her, A, for her to keep after our, you know, two years together, but also for her to own that, to go, actually, this is the, this is the kind of person I want to be. This is, the, this is how I want to behave. This is how I want to act. This is how I'm going to show up. And I think using that, you know, linking back to this idea of when we make change, why do we make change? That manifesto, I think, can change. You know, it can evolve. I'm sure mm. it's not going to be the same when you're 29 as when you're 59. But I think having that is almost like an anchor point. So when you're maybe making a decision, which is like, yeah, I'm going to move to another country or maybe I want to get divorced or maybe I want to quit my job. Coming back to that manifesto, I think will make that decision easier because it will either make you go, absolutely, yes, do it. You know, what have you been waiting for? Or it'll make you go, hang on a minute, this isn't aligned with any of the things that you care about. You're being influenced by something else. Maybe just you had a moment. (laughs) Maybe you had a minute. In fact, there's this funny video I saw recently online of this woman who basically, she's on like one of those shows in America where you ask the host, like like an agony aunt thing. And she asks the guy, she's like, yeah, you know, I'm a primary school teacher and I earn this much money. But she said, I know this woman who quit her job as a teacher to become a professional twerker and she was yeah, no, serious, serious and she was like i she makes three times more than much more money and she basically was like i want to do that and so the guy's like say that again he genuinely just goes let's just take a minute and then he says to her can you twerk because you yeah, anyway it's this whole thing she goes up on the stage she does the thing and he just goes don't quit your job but not in like a cuss way he genuinely is just like listen you're having a moment basically just like go and sit down it's a no for me and it's funny because she kind of goes you know what you're right and it's interesting because of course with love with compassion that is comedy but sometimes we all have a moment don't you think i'm trying to think of some things that i've done where i've just been like oh i'm just gonna do this and that is what i'm gonna do and then somebody else sometimes goes really but this this goes back to what seems to be your favorite word now being authentic Um, and uh, (laughs) and um is this because we've bought into this like pure misunderstood narrative now of authentic being your real self, that therefore there's no space for feedback. 
Yes. You know what? Because we're social animals and we've evolved actually through working together. You know, but now now in this world, and maybe it's because it's a Western mindset of like the, the, the individual, you must decide everything and stick to your inner gut instinct on everything. Mm. Actually, having some really candid honest direct <laughs> feedback from people that you trust can, be, can actually save your career potentially well that, you see that's really interesting isn't it no space for feedback you're right this idea that like you do you you know you you know what's best you live your life don't listen to them when actually exactly self-awareness feedback sometimes it's good to listen to them it's not always not always but sometimes feedback take it on board and it was it was great she took the feedback very well and everybody kind of laughed and applauded but i did think wow maybe she maybe she would have just quit her job to become a professional twerker without that all right on that note we have to do a quick of course power hour last time you were on the show you told us about your power hour but you have since then become a father so you weren't even a dad back then you've since then become a father i would love to know if and how and when i'm sure it has changed what is your power hour currently like what time do you get up what's the first hour of your day like these days wow with having a two and a quarter year old now and one on the way there's definitely no order um okay. it, 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 i mean it's actually something that i'm trying to work harder on and i've always been somebody who tries to get their head down quite early i really appreciate my sleep so i'm finding that trying to get up at 6 a.m so that i've got a bit of a window before poppy wakes up at 7 a.m just to literally just have my own space to read or do a bit of work because i find that I'm most productive in the mornings. Psychologically for me, if I feel like I get something done in, in that space, it has like a real positive ripple effect. Yeah. If if I don't, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, once the two-year-old's awake, it's a whirlwind after that, isn't it? So good luck. Yeah. Great, great. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been a while. And obviously, I know we sometimes work together. Our paths cross a lot, which I'm very grateful for. But I'm sure the listeners have got lots to think about and discuss after today's conversation. So thank you so much, Dean. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. As always, I appreciate it. And I will be back next week with another episode. See ya. See ya.